Amen, indeed. Uh, thank you to our music team for leading us in song and helping us to come into our time around the Word with already a few good sermons that we preach to each other in song. If you look at our passage this morning, you can't help but notice the, the martial language, the, the language of battle and war that, that is there. And it's interesting if you, if you visualize or conceptualize of the rise and fall and the rise and fall of, of the church in, in our country in, in terms of, of war language, of, of battle lines moving forward and back. And at least as I, I would imagine that you have like these pockets, right, that are, are faithful, they're strong, they're, they're holding firm, they're standing their ground against all that comes at them. And then it seems like there's large parts of the battlefield where the church is more concerned in like marching drills and shiny new uniforms and fanfare and in all the, the trappings of polished boots and shiny uh, you know, instruments of war, but, but we don't want to get them dirty. So, so whenever the enemy gets too close, we, we just sort of retreat and reform and and the goal is, if we ever do actually somehow make contact with the enemy, can we, can we always make them wonder if we're really on their side or not, and avoid any unpleasant hostilities? And Paul is writing to Timothy this morning, challenging him not to give in to those pressures. In Ephesus, that large city that Timothy was in, that pressure was there all the time, the pressure to, to compromise, to blend in with the culture, especially at those pain points that were important to the culture, right? They could have these Christian convictions. That was fine because nobody cared. But there's always those issues, those hot-button issues where the culture does care. And that's always where the church is tempted to change its message, use different language, avoid direct confrontation. And if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want us to hear... Paul's charge to Timothy to be somebody who would guard that line of Christian faithfulness. To honor the reading of God's word, I invite you to stand. First Timothy, we're going to read chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 20. God's word reads thus, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to your people. And I thank you for Valley Bible Church and for churches around our city, many of whom for many years have faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would, through your word, remind us constantly of the need for vigilance and holiness so that we might see you honored in what we believe and in how we obey and that our testimony to who Jesus Christ is and to what he's done would thus be strengthened and would be accurate generation after generation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> well, as I said, 
the language of battle is right there in the text. And we're going to see right out of the bat in verse 18 that Paul is going to remind Timothy that Christian service, our good service to the Lord, is a good fight. You can't separate those two things. Paul last week gave us this this amazing mini biography of how God's mercy had come to him, to the one who was a blasphemer, who was a violent aggressor, who was a persecutor, and that God in his mercy had seen in Paul what he would become as a product of the grace of God working through his life, a useful and faithful servant of God. And now as he turns his attention back to Timothy, he is calling him to understand that in his own ministry and what God has made of him, he too will be a servant and to be a servant means to be in a battle. Every servant of God has been entrusted with a calling. Paul writes out of the beginning here to Timothy saying, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And we see here, first of all, Paul's discipleship towards Timothy and the nature of it. As he gives this command to Timothy, he's doing so in a particular way, as a father, as a spiritual father to his spiritual son. And that, that frames how we understand this command because we're, we're in a world full of people who like to give commands. Uh, we've got teachers who give commands. There's governments that give commands. There's employers who give commands. Some of us really appreciate when our homeowners association gives commands. We're in a world full of commands, but they're not always particularly helpful, not always very personal. But here we see a spiritual father. And notice he's not only directing this command at Timothy, but he's entrusting this command to Timothy. He's not merely calling him to live a certain way. He's giving him a stewardship of that calling to employ himself. And this is always a, a precious and moving and meaningful time when, for example, in the life of a family, when a parent has that talk, right, with their children who are coming of age and says, my son, my daughter, this is what it means to live a mature adult life. And this is what we've been training you for and preparing you for. And now we call you to live this. Not just so that it will have its fruit in your life, but we are giving to you the responsibility to seek that in the relationships you will now engage in, you will be equipped to help others reach maturity as well. And that passing off of the baton is what's happening here between Paul and Timothy. And Paul references both the message and the manner of Paul, or excuse me, of Timothy's calling. What is that message or this command as it says here? Well, it's the instruction that Paul had already begun to describe just a few verses ago. If you remember back in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, Paul had begun to tell Timothy, I know I've gone to Macedonia, but I need you to stay behind so that you can instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And then he goes on to define what those are. And then he says this, but the goal of our instruction, and that word instruction there is the same word as command in our verse this morning. 
The goal of our command, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he will continue to develop this instruction even in our passage this morning. We will see faith and conscience show up again in just a few minutes. And he'll continue to develop it through the rest of the book. But this is the heart of it. That teaching that guards against spiritual error and distraction and which preserves a pure worship from the heart. That is the command that Paul is laying upon Timothy And it is not merely a suggestion, but it is his duty. And Paul is pressing that duty upon him. And I think sometimes in the Christian life, we want to drive duty and and grace to opposite corners. Over here is the duty-bound life or the legalistic life. And over here is a life lived under grace. And the good news of living under grace is that following Jesus is kind of just optional. But over and over again, we see in the life of Paul and in the writings of Paul, he blends these together because of grace. How much greater should our sense of duty to the king be? Motivated not by fear, such as in legalism, but by love and the loyalty of a good son. And this is what he calls Timothy to. And that calling in Timothy's life was pretty special. Not only is there this command that he's been entrusted with, but look at the manner of Timothy's calling. He was given a spiritual gifting for for service that was accompanied by prophecies. Paul will mention this again when he writes a similar charge, uh, just a few chapters, 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, that we will get to at some point in the future, which says this, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. What an experience that must have been, right? For for Timothy to have been called in front of the church and for those with this gift of prophecy to come and to declare, this is God's calling on your life, Timothy. This is what you will do and to receive a spiritual gift to be able to accomplish that ministry. What confidence that would bring. And I confess, I'm jealous And as a youth pastor, I know a lot of our youth would probably really enjoy it if we had prophecy week where you line all the youths up and then we call all the prophets up and we say, what's this one supposed to do? Plumber. I wanted to be a plumber. Fantastic. Excellent. What is she supposed to do? Build a spaceship. Fantastic. We could go go right down the line. That was Timothy's experience. It's not normal. And it's not even normal in the book of 1 Timothy. Fast forward just a couple chapters here to chapter 3, and Paul's going to start telling Timothy, here's how you establish leadership in the church. And he doesn't say, assemble the church, bring the prophets, have them point out the people who are supposed to be leaders, and then move on with things. He says, no, here's how it's going to work normally, Timothy. You're going to put the call out to men and say, if you have been given the desire for the work of an overseer, that's a good desire. And then those men who express such a desire are to be examined and scrutinized according to biblical qualifications of character and giftedness for competency in that ministry. And then those who have survived that process are then to be brought for the affirmation of the church body. That's how it normally looks. And that's how it often functions today. 
that God gives to us desires as we delight ourselves in him. And those desires are recognized and affirmed by the church body who sees in us gifts and abilities that God is working through us. And, and that affirmation begins to build around us. And that's certainly how it was in my life as a young man growing up in the church. I was interested in everything. I'm sort of omni-curious. And it turns out I'm omni-curious, but I'm not omni-competent. And so I was trying all kinds of things. And faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord were coming alongside and saying, I love you, Chris. You're really bad at that. Okay. And being shaped and steered and then having desires begin to grow in my heart. Lord, would, would it be possible that I could serve your church? And people saying, you know what? I'm seeing something that I think God is using. Pursue this. Invest in this. And that's how it normally works in our life is God through his people, through the working within our own soul, through the affirmation of saints, helps us to understand our calling. But understand this, not everyone will be called to vocational ministry or to church leadership, to a teaching ministry, but every child of God is given a gift for gospel service. Every one of us. As Ephesians 4 taught us, those words we know well, God has given in his grace to each one a gift. And, and whether that's a gift like apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, he throws out some, some of the different options there. The purpose of all these gifts is to see the entire body of Christ attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the fullness of the Son of God, to become a mature man. And it only happens when what every joint supplies, when what every part of the body provides is working together to build itself up in love. We have all been given a command, if you will, to invest in the full maturity of the body of Christ by our faithful service. We have all been commissioned to this work or in the process of being commissioned to this work as we explore our giftedness, as we have that giftedness affirmed by the body. And furthermore, we each have the instruction of the word of God that binds our duty not only to the gifts that we have, but also to the station of life that he has called us to. Not all of us are going to be bachelors like Paul running around. But are you a child? That is a holy station that God has called you to. And you have a responsibility, yes, a duty from the Lord to honor and to obey your parents. Are you a parent? That is a station that God has called you to. And you have a duty to raise your children, to love your spouse in a way that would honor the Lord. Are you an employer or an employee? God has declared how you must conduct yourself. Magistrates, governors, church leaders, every station of life, God's word compels us, gives us our duty in how we must honor him in the midst of that. And so every person in every station of life with every spiritual gift and every ministry can stand beside Timothy and hear in this verse a charge to remember our gospel truth loyalty and our gospel ministry calling. The Christian life is just that. It is a calling. It's not a, a product that we procure. 
Jesus didn't simply lay out his wares and say, do you like what you see? And we walk up and say, not bad. I'll take one Christianity to go, please. Jesus comes and confronts us in our sinful way of living, and he says to us, follow me. And why is it so important that we understand this and that we have this weighty sense of duty about this? Well, it's because we are at war. Every Christian has a calling, and every calling engages the enemy. In these things, in this command that Timothy's received, according to the, the calling through prophetic utterances that he had been given, Paul says, by them fight the good fight. We know Paul is sort of into soldiers. He loves to use that language throughout his writings. He likes to talk about what it means to be a good soldier with dedication to the general or the king. He talks about what it means to be a soldier who's unentangled from the things of the world that would slow them down in battle. He likes to even go through and detail all the pieces of armor and the outfits that they wear and compare them to the different resources we have in Christ for fighting the spiritual battles in front of us. But in this case, this particular phrase, when Paul says, fight the good fight, he uses a phrase he only ever uses when he's talking to Timothy. This is one of their things. This is one of their phrases. And when Paul speaks to Timothy of fighting the good fight, he means faithfulness to God by fleeing sin and walking in obedience. And for Paul, there was nothing more dear or passionate to him to pass on to Timothy than that. And you can hear it in his heart. We'll get to this passage in more detail again someday in 1 Timothy 6. But listen to this language. Paul warning Timothy about the things in this world that will trip him up and will trip up the church. He says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice the similarity to the language of rejection and shipwreck in our passage. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance. Unless you think Paul's commissioning toxic masculinity, the last item in the list is gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You think Paul cares about this? This was his lifeblood. We talked at our men's breakfast yesterday about the importance of convictional leadership. And you can hear it here, can you not? Paul does not only believe this is what we must do, he has been grabbed by this and he can do no other. And it is his great desire that what has been true in his life would now be transferred to Timothy. Because Paul knows his time is growing short. In fact, he's going to write Timothy another letter not much long after. 
knowing that the order for his execution is imminent. And in that letter, 2 Timothy, as he writes his final words to this dear son in the faith, he will say, hey, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time for me to depart has come. But then he can tell Timothy, and you can just hear almost just the the joy in his heart, I did it. I fought the good fight. I finished the course, and I'm headed to my reward. And you can hear in his heart that longing for his son, I hope you're right behind me. This life is war. And for those who overcome, there is reward. Who are we fighting? Against whom must we persevere? Well, spoiler alert, it's the same unholy trinity we're always dealing with. Brothers and sisters, we are at war with the devil. That's not a newsflash, but it's true. We are at war with the devil. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 to the church there that Timothy's ministering to, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on that full armor of God, back to that soldier language, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. The instant a person says, I wish to be a child of God, my allegiance is now to Jesus, Satan says, okay, you're an enemy, and goes to war. He's real. Satan is not a mythological concept that just sort of expresses the idea of objective evil. He's a being of great power and intelligence, cast from heaven for his own sin, who took about a third of the other angelic beings with them, or with him in that rebellion. We now call them demons. And they've been up to no good ever since. And it's not only noticed that we are to be wary of Satan himself, the demons themselves, as though we had to be ready for them to sort of personally tackle us, but it is their schemes. They come at us through manipulation, and can strike out at us from afar. We don't need to uh, strap on our super spirit swords and go demon hunting. You're never instructed in Scripture anywhere to do that. Did you hear what we are called to do over and over in this passage? Stand firm. Stand firm. In our fight against the devil, our objective is not to defeat the devil. God's got that in hand. Our objective is that we would never be taken in by the schemes of the devil and moved, but that we would stay right where God has planted us in truth. We are at war with the devil. We are also at war with the world. We're at war with the world. Romans 12, 1 to 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says to the church there in Rome that there's a pressure in this world to sort of be vacuum molded into the image of the world. And we must resist that and instead be transformed in our minds by truth. What is it in the world? What is this world that it speaks of that we are so worried about? Well, John describes this in 1 John 2, verses 16 to 17, when he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's what we're talking about. Does this mean that as Christians, we're at war with our neighbors who aren't Christians? No. We're at war with certain people in certain positions of power or ethnicities or socioeconomic groups or that we don't like physical stuff. Some people are like, yeah, I'm spiritual and dirt's bad. God loves dirt. And he loves trees. He loves bugs and animals. He loves people. When the scripture speaks of the world, it speaks of this. It speaks of what we have put together as a system of human hubris erected in the face of God, consisting of the lusts of our flesh, the desires that run against who God is, the desires of our heart, our desire to get what we want apart from God, and the boastful pride of life, us thinking that we can be God. That is what we are at war with. And James, being blunt, writes this. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our world is captured by desires that are broken. And we cannot be friendly to what the world loves and be a friend of God at the same time. But as much of a challenge as it is to stand firm against the devil, as much of a challenge as it is to resist the pressure of the world upon us, that is not our greatest foe. Our greatest enemy with which we must do battle every single day is the flesh. Galatians 5, we know this, talks about the importance of walking in the Spirit because if we do, we will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. It is sad, but it is true that all of us who are descendants of Adam, we have inherited his broken spiritual nature. And by that, I mean we are born with the default setting. And a default setting we are powerless to change, by the way, of wanting what we ought not to want apart from the one who gives all good gifts. We want what we should not want. We love it and we will live for it. That's the kind of creature we are. And when we in Christ are made new in him and we become a new creature and we have a new nature in Christ, we now are at war with ourselves. For there is now that in us that Christ has produced that longs for him. And we're still dragging around that broken nature we were born with that longs for everything else. And you might be looking around this room and saying, man, 
looking around at all these godly older people here. I just can't wait till that day comes when I have my big breakthrough and I achieve that, that stage of sanctification when I have victory over all my petty longings and desires and it's all love for Christ all the time. Keep waiting. But take heart. Paul himself Romans 7 says this, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? The instant you become a child of God, you become a soldier on a battlefield. Welcome to on-the-job training. And even if you could take a Christian, you could put him on a desert island that God had put a spiritual force field around where Satan and all his minions couldn't have at you, where the world could have no access, you would still be in a daily battle because you'd bring yourself. And so every Christian must fight the good fight and fight it every day. And that means we better know how to fight it well. And that's what Paul tells Timothy next. The good fight requires a good conscience. In verses 19 to 20, Paul says, keeping faith and a good conscience. The center of our strategy to fight the good fight of faith is godliness. That is the center of our strategy. Faith here speaks of the ongoing trust we have in God in accordance with the truth about him he has revealed to us in his scripture. It's those two things put together. That's why often you'll see throughout the New Testament, the teachings of the Bible are actually referred to as the faith and that you hand the faith and you preach the faith and you teach the faith. But what Paul is talking about here is not just the teachings, but it is the trust in them that we must have. Those two things together. If we wish to fight well, we must hold fast to what God has revealed. That's Christian conviction stemming from Christian belief, stemming from biblical divine revelation. It's what we see even in the Lord's table, not Lord's table, the great commission of our Lord when he said, go make disciples and then immediately begin to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And if we do that, if we trust that what God has said is true and we cling to that as we cling to him, calibrates our conscience and it protects our conscience so that we will have a good conscience as Paul writes here. Our conscience is an interesting thing. Romans 2.15 describes its basic operation. It's a simple device. It does two things. It goes ding or ah. Right? It either defends your actions or it accuses you. You do something and your your conscience goes attaboy or you know you shouldn't have done that. That's what a conscience does. Everybody comes with one. That's a blessing from God. But here's the thing. Like any sensitive piece of equipment, you have to take care of it or it can become broken. The conscience is the kind of thing that is calibrated by the truth that you put your faith in. What you trust is true points the needle of your conscience straight up and down. And that's why we see in our world this, this sincere battle between ideas where you see those who sincerely believe 
that what God has said is evil is right and good. And they sincerely believe that we are wicked when we will not accept it. And their conscience affirms them in this because that is the diet of truth they have feasted on. If we wish to have not just a conscience, but a good conscience, it must be calibrated according to the truth of God's word. Our job is not to judge the sincerity of the world. We can't do that. I don't know people's hearts. Our job is that we would have our, our eyes and our hearts so much in the word of God that we know truth from error at the conscience level. And so when we do what God has said is right, our conscience says, boy." even if the whole world says no. And if we do what God says is wrong, our conscience says, you shouldn't have done that, even if the whole world says yes. Calibrate your conscience. Secondly, protect it. The conscience is the kind of thing that by neglect can be damaged. It's kind of like the e-brake on your vehicle. If you ignore your e-brake and you decide I'm going to drive anyway for a short while, you're like, this vehicle doesn't seem to want to go in this direction. But I will persist. And then you're like, this vehicle smells funny. But I will persist. And then a short time later, problem's gone. Everything's fine now. You can erode your conscience away. You can sear it until it no longer functions. And Paul is calling Timothy, pay attention to truth, to calibrate your conscience, and then live with sensitivity to your conscience. This is so important, important, in fact, that when Paul writes to some of the churches like Rome, he says, look, some of you in Christ have discovered that there are things that are great blessings from God that he has said Christians can participate in. And there are people in your church, either because of their Jewish background or because of certain sin patterns they've come after or come out of, they look at those things and they go, I don't think Christians should be allowed to do that. And he says, whatever you do, don't ever pressure one of those believers to partake of a blessing even if it goes against their conscience. Never run ahead of your conscience. If over time the truth of God's word recalibrates your conscience so that you can take advantage of these blessings in faith, in worship, great. But it is more important to protect the sensitivity of our conscience than it is even to enjoy the full bounty of God's blessings. And if we will not do this, the stakes are high. Paul says some have rejected this. They've rejected the faith. They've rejected to have a good conscience and they have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. If you set yourself against the truth of God's word and against the pattern of godliness God's word calls us to, Paul says there's only two paths that lie ahead of you, repentance or ruin. Repentance or ruin. So we can skip ahead a couple slides, guys. Thank you. It's no small matter for someone to abandon the clarity of the gospel message and the purity of gospel living, but it happens all the time. 
I'm still quite young in some respects, but it grieves me already to have known and looked up to so many men who once claimed to be messengers of the gospel and have rejected their message and their calling. To have seen and known men who have traded the inspiration, the authority, the inerrancy of scripture for intellectual approval from the world and academic institutions. To have seen and to have known men who have denied biblical moral standards so that they don't have to face the ridicule of a grievously immoral culture. To have seen and known men who have cheapened the atonement of Jesus Christ so that the gospel can be about us and our petty earthly and social needs. To have seen and known men who have abandoned Christ's purposes for the local church and think they are wise enough to invent a new approach to discipleship better than the one Christ gave us. To have seen and known men who have forsaken the sufficiency of God's word and God's spirit for the comfort of God's people so they can be congratulated for offering the world's substitutes instead. To have seen and known men who have peddled a twisted form of grace that minimizes holiness only to find it out it was so that they could cover for their own unrepentant sin. And what has been the response of the church to such men? Well, we give them the front display case in Christian bookstores to sell their latest heresy. We make them editors of our largest Christian publications. We plaster their betrayals on blogs that still have gospel in the title, apparently, ironically. We've given them top billing at national Christian conferences. It is entirely, it is entirely possible to experience Christian fame soaring above the waves and spiritual shipwreck, excuse me, sunk on the bottom of the ocean at the same time. And that's why Paul is laying this charge so emphatically on Timothy. If Satan was always obvious and ugly when he sends his messengers into the church, there would be little need of warning. But when God sends his fishers of men, they cast their nets wide and let God give the increase. And when Satan sends his messengers, they get cruel barbed hooks and they cover them in bait and they lure in the unsuspecting. Paul loves people too much to remain silent when danger approaches. And that's why in this passage, he names names. Alexander is still a popular name. I haven't met a lot of people named Hymenaeus. He says, Timothy, watch out for this. And let me tell you two guys in particular to keep your eye on because they are a danger to the church. They have rejected truth and they are living according to a broken conscience. And he says, in fact, this is so important. I have removed them from the fellowship of the saints. I have handed them over to Satan. That is about as strong a language as you can get. What does that mean? Paul says the church cannot be safe harbor for unrepentant sin and false doctrine. Can it be safe harbor for any kind of sinner dealing with any kind of struggle? I sure hope so, or we're going to have to cancel services next week. But unrepentant, hard-hearted sin and a commitment to false doctrine cannot allow, be allowed to remain safely among the people of God. And Paul says that is true for the believer and for the unrepentant sinner. 
Notice he doesn't say, I just put this person outside the church so that they can be destroyed as they deserve. He says, I put this person outside the church so that hopefully when they get separated from the blessings of Christian fellowship and the warmth of that family, and they are out in the world being buffeted by Satan, they will be, notice, taught not to blaspheme. They'll realize it's scary out here. I was wrong. I have been speaking against the truth. And the petty lust of my flesh that I wanted enough to shipwreck my conscience and to abandon what I know is true is a lie. And they would come back. That's his desire. But there only are two options. Repentance or ruin. Will we, brothers and sisters, fight the good fight as the music team comes forward? Will we fight the good fight? Will we keep faith and a good conscience? I ask you, will you, Valley Bible Church, be a church that will hold your leaders accountable to sound doctrine and biblical conduct? Will the saints, all of us of Valley Bible Church, still be faithfully finishing our courses when Jesus comes back? Built on the mercy of God in Christ, which saves us. Guided by the word of God, which instructs us. Sustained by the spirit of God, who indwells us, looking to the fulfillment of our hope in God that encourages us. We shall by the grace of God, fight long and fight well. Amen? Amen.